everyone, just a quick heads up. You might hear a little bit of office noise in the background of this episode, but we think you'll still love it. Happy listening. Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. It's Rachel from the Small Giants community, and if you are enjoying this podcast with Paul, you will love hanging out with 250 other purpose-driven leaders. Register for the annual Small Giants Community Summit, where we bring together like-hearted leaders from around the country for three days of learning and connecting. Visit smallgiants.org to learn more and register, and we'll see you there. My guest today is Raman Shada. Raman is the founder of the Junto Institute whose mission is to help leaders and their companies become smarter, healthier, and better. Prior to Junto, Raman was the founding director of DePaul University's Entrepreneurship Center, where he was also on the faculty. Welcome, Raman. Thank you. I appreciate it, Paul. Looking forward to the conversation. Yes, me too. I've been uh, looking forward to talking to you for a long time. Um, let's start out with an understanding of Junto and uh, what kind of services Junto provides. Sure. Um, so the Junto Institute has a mission of helping companies and leaders become infinitely better and smarter and healthier. And we do that through uh, deep mentorship and emotional intelligence training, uh, primarily through a, a nine to 12 month program that the founders and leaders of growth stage companies go through and are supported by a pretty robust community of seasoned operators. So it's, uh, it's taught by, essentially, by practitioners for the most part, people that have already either are currently in business or used to be in business? Uh, people who've been in business for a long time. Uh, many of them are currently operating companies, and many of them have, are serial entrepreneurs, serial operators. Uh, so they have pretty deep experience running businesses that are typically um, quite a bit larger than the companies that we serve. Okay. So in most cases, they've walked in their shoes. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about this word emotional intelligence for a minute because I've, I've heard it a lot. If you said it, if you asked me what it was, I don't think I could give you a, a good definition. So how do you really define it? And secondly, how do you teach it? Sure. So the way that we define it at Junto is emotional intelligence is our ability to recognize and regulate the emotions in ourselves and in others. Second part is how we use that information uh, to guide our actions, thinking, and behavior. And the third is how we do that in a virtuous way. Huh. Uh, we actually take a stance that it is something that candidly can't be taught. It's hard for me to teach someone emotional intelligence, but we now have plenty of evidence that it can be learned. And so what we do is build a, a process and a program that if people show up, and they do the work, inevitably they actually do become emotionally intelligent just by that process. Hmm. Um, so it's more, it, it more puts the accountability more on the learner as opposed to on the teacher. Okay. And how do you recognize when they got there or when they've become, as you say, emotionally intelligent? Is that just in the way they uh, interact 
in their conversations and how they perform? Yes. So what what I'm hearing you say is a couple of things. Number one is when do they? Um, And candidly, we never really were in a position to tell them that they have. Yeah. And in fact, we look at emotional intelligence more as a journey as opposed to a destination. Um, in fact, one of the, our favorite sayings in Hunto is, it doesn't really matter how emotionally intelligent we are. What matters is how emotionally intelligent we can be. Right. Um, and then the second part is, is that, yes, there are plenty of markers or indicators of people becoming more emotionally intelligent. Um, and the truth is, is that we're, again, not in a position to judge that because we're only seeing them periodically. Um, so a lot of it comes from their experiences uh, that they're having, um, not only with the people around them, but also with themselves. And then secondly, and this is you know one of the most fulfilling parts of our work, is when we hear from the people they work with and live with. And that is the true measure in our view. Now, what type of entrepreneurs would be good candidates to participate in Junto's programs? Uh, do you have a range of kinds of companies or what level in the company these people uh, reside? Yeah, so so we focus on the founders and executives of what we call growth stage businesses that typically have um, 10 to 100 employees. They're coming into Hunto usually growing at a 20 to 50% um, annual rate. And then um, the two to three years after graduating from our program, they're typically growing at about a 40 to 100% annual rate. Um, we, we do focus on the founders and executives and in the program, there are different ways where they can get their employees involved as well. Um, but that's not our focal point. And that, that becomes more of a, of an added benefit that they, that they get uh, from the program. But beyond the kind of demographics, the most critical thing that we look for is a heightened sense of self-awareness and humility that they don't know it all and that they're comfortable acknowledging that with the right people. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounds like an amazing program. Uh, how did the Junto Institute began, begin? Uh, well, part of my background, as you noted, was in higher education. And um, I'm not a scholar, so I kind of fell into it from industry. But one of the biggest things that I learned during my time in education was how adults learn, which is remarkably different than how our education system is built. And in fact, for many of us who um, have a critical view of, of higher education today, um, we are, we're able to trace that to this idea of the fact that um, our uh, college and university system was built similarly to how our primary education system was built. Um, so I learned how adults learn, um, and I can go into details on that if you want. But, but secondly, I also uh, started developing a personal interest and passion in leadership, and then subsequently emotional intelligence. And those two dynamics, the education experience and then the emotional intelligence learning, kind of um, clashed, if you will, or collided with my own um, growth and reflection as an adult, kind of who I was, who I wanted to be, and why I wasn't there just yet. Hmm. And it taught me so much about why that wasn't the case. And I was able to look back to my childhood and how I was brought up and the people around me and the relationships I had. And all of a sudden, one day I recognized that this was the kind of thing that no one was really seeming to be seemingly talking about with respect to entrepreneurs and founders. 
And I was, I was going through my own growth for a few years. Um, I then started to go to a lot of the companies that I know here in the Chicago area where I've spent most of my life and just started asking them um, questions that, you know, very many of a lot of them said that they had never been asked before about their own growth, about their own development, about their own relationships and how that kind of um, matched up with what they did on a daily basis as leaders and started to recognize that there was this place where we might be able to bring the two together, who they are and what they do. And so that kind of formed the genesis of it. Yeah. Well, I want to dig into a little bit to to really uh, your story and kind of what led to this. So prior to even being um, starting the entrepreneurship program and you said you, you came from industry, did you run a company or were you working in companies? What was your kind of business background prior to, to that? Yeah. So before I joined DePaul, with, uh, which was in the early 2000s, um, I ran a growth consulting firm for about eight years. And prior to that, spent uh, six years in corporate America. Got it. So um, I want to kind of take you back um, a little bit further because uh, this journey that you've had from being um, in corporate America, then consulting, now going to education, and then it seems like you kind of found this real sweet spot where all of this intersected and you found um, what uh, where you could really make an impact and feel fulfilled uh, yourself. But t- tell me about kind of your childhood influences, maybe from your folks that uh, impacted some of this journey that you're on today. Yeah, so um, probably the most, um, two most critical things are number one, uh, my parents are immigrants uh, and they immigrated to Canada with me. Uh, I spent a few years there uh, where my brother was also born and then we moved to Chicago when I was a, a child. Um, and we moved an awful lot. Uh, not only, you know, we only lived in, in a couple of cities, but my father, um, he was still alive and kicking, just turned 80 years old, was, was the hardest working man I've ever known. Mm-hmm. And he was constantly, like so many immigrants, working to make a better life for his family. Um, the downside of that was, as I mentioned, we moved an awful lot. And uh, I, as a result, never kept friends, never kept friendships, uh, because I was always changing schools, changing neighborhoods, changing cities. And in fact, um, I never stayed at one school for more than three years until high school. Um, I went to eight schools in eight years. Um, and that, this was one of the biggest insights I got in studying emotional intelligence. I kind of traced my, my life, uh, back and it showed me it um, showed me so much about my challenges with certain types of relationships, and that it was just baked into my own story. Um, so that was a, a those two were were really big influences. And then the third was that um, my parents, God bless them, they're they're wonderful grandparents, um, but they admit that they were not the best parents uh, that they could have been. And you know that caused a lot of tension and challenges in, in our home, um, both between the two of them as, as uh, uh, husband and wife and parents of two kids, but then also within our whole family of four people. And so just like most people, you know, my definition of family and, and how family dynamics were um, kind of looked at was just through the lens of my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really, it really didn't have much else to compare it to. 
And then when I got married, I was able to use my, uh, my in-laws family as a, as another, um, kind of benchmark and saw some differences in the two experiences. Um, the biggest difference, obviously that was, I'm an, I'm an adult when I'm seeing this new yeah. family into my life. Um, but that also then, um, as in, again, this was all in retrospect in my thirties and forties where I'm discovering how those family dynamics really shaped me. Um, and the good news is, is that if it weren't for studying emotional intelligence and leadership, uh, I don't know if I'd been able to uncover those dynamics as clearly as they, um, uh, were illustrated to me in my mind, you know, during that time. And, and what about, um, was there any uh, time in in school or in uh, even early jobs where you also were thinking about this topic, this kind of self-reflection or, or realizing um, some of the challenges that you had that you at some point wanted to find a way to overcome? No. <laughs> this is what's remarkable, Paul, is that I began my journey at the age of 40. And it boggles my mind uh, that it hadn't occurred before, uh, because today I get to be around people who are starting their own personal spiritual growth journeys in their twenties and thirties, and they're doing it by choice. Mine was kind of by accident. Um, the good news is, is I tell my story now a lot, especially in Junto, um, with people who are a little bit older and they start to see that it's possible. Um, you know, we've, we've dispelled that old adage, old dogs can't learn new tricks. I mean, <laughs> we, we've had, we've had a graduate who, you know, um, who's in her fifties. Um, we've had a grad last year, we had a graduate who was 57 and this year we've got one who's 61 years old. And when I hear from them that in six, nine, 12 months, they are growing more than they feel like they ever have in their adult life. That's a powerful thing to take in. Um, so, you know, there, there's so much opportunity for those of us, regardless of where we are in our lives. Yeah. That's such a great message too. Um, and it's funny as I am listening to, I was thinking about my, my daughter, who's, um, almost 18 and applying to colleges and, and feeling the same kind of pressure that other kids at that age are feeling, which is that they already have to have a sense of direction or know what they're going to do or, uh, understand their purpose in life. And, and I try to just say, gosh, there's no way you could possibly know at this time what your passion is and um, where you're going to end up unless you have a particular skill or you're an athlete or something like that. Um, and I think for most of us, if we're honest about it, that that um, that journey is a long journey. And I think what's so fascinating is that you you're able to offer that to people that um, are, you know, middle age or later in life and, and that it's just so powerful um, in that concentrated time of nine to 12 months for them to go through that kind of self-discovery. Um, when you say, you know, you were 40 when it happened and it kind of happened by accident, was there a, an aha moment, an event, anything particular that, that caused you to think more about this kind of stuff? Um, there was. It, it, I traced this back to right after the recession hit and I was running the entrepreneurship center at um, a university and I realized that my own um, role as a leader had to evolve, but I didn't know how. So I actually just very 
um, kind of innocently sent an email to the dean of the business school at this major university and asked a question, can I be put through whatever leadership training all the other department heads are put through? And the response was, we don't have a standard for that, which surprised me because this was a business school. Um, So I then sent an email to the director of training and development for the entire university. And the response was, um, I did a search on Google and here are some programs that I found. And I sat there dumbfounded. Um, And so after I got over the puzzlement, I did what any rational person would do and I Googled it myself. And I just started, literally one afternoon in my office, started reading whatever I could um, that was credible about leadership. And I was periodically coming across this phrase, emotional intelligence, which I had heard like many people in the the late 90s, but never had really studied or um, dug into. Um, And I have a deep appreciation for science. I've always um, been someone who believes in doing things and, and exploring things that are rooted in what I see as truth. And what I found so powerful about emotional intelligence, what it was just that. It was the backbone of it, the foundation of it was the science um, of psychology and especially built on the pillars of positive psychology. And so it was that moment, um, that afternoon when I you know, uh, got those responses, the email responses that there wasn't anything programmatic within uh, this university And I'm grateful for that because had I just gone through a normal program, who knows if I would have ever encountered, you know, this, this wonderful discipline now that forms the basis of not only my, my work, but more importantly, my life. Hmm. So, uh, now you've, you've gone through this self-learning process and you've discovered this idea of emotional intelligence and it's starting to impact and change your life in a big way. Uh, how did that morph into, oh, we can actually teach this stuff to other people and I can build an organization around it. Yeah. So I'd, um, I'd already made the decision to do just that. And I had a roadmap for how we were going to do it along the way. Um, I was running an event when I was still, um, at the university and there was this older gentleman who walked in with, uh, a leather jacket that looked out of a bike, looked, looked like it was out of a biker's movie. Uh, blue jeans and cowboy boots, um, silver hair, but extremely handsome, and the kind of guy who just radiated energy. He walked into the room um, while I was up on stage introducing the next speaker, and throughout the whole afternoon, what was going through my mind was, who is this guy? <laughs> At the end of the program, he walked up to me and he said, is this your program? Did you run this? And I said, yes. And he goes, my name is Jim Leotode. And Jim Leotode... Um, is, was a serial entrepreneur, very successful, um, a former engineer, built several companies, um, and in his later years when he was retired, started his own um, not-for-profit organization called the Leotode Institute. Through that, he commissioned a study with a group of psychologists at the University of Illinois Chicago to, to see whether emotional intelligence could be developed in senior executives. So they ran a, uh, an experiment in the 2000s with a YPO chapter uh, in Chicago. And lo and behold, over two years, they found that there was a 23% increase in emotional intelligence competencies with the experimental group over the control group. And 
Jim ended up becoming a mentor to me. Um, he shared a lot of the work that he had done, uh, both independently, but also with his scientists. Uh, gave um, access to some of the work that they did, which we incorporated into Unto. And um, Jim passed away in, I think it was 2015 or 16. Um, and while he himself has achieved, had achieved so much more in his life, um, he's also known very popularly as the father of Jimmy John, Jimmy John Leotode. Um, and Jim Leotode also um, is the benefactor of the UIC Leotode School of Business. So he was a really important, impactful human being, and I'm grateful that, uh, that he also played a, a, a really important role you know, in my life and my work. Hmm. Let's take a quick break. Support for today's episode comes from Benedictine University's Center for Values-Driven Leadership, where they offer a PhD program for senior executives who want to build strong, positive cultures that deliver exceptional performances. The unique curriculum combines academic rigor with insights you can put to work on Monday morning. Through the three-year program, you become an expert in the aspect of leadership you're most passionate about so you can have a transformative impact in your business and on society. Find out how you can lead your company while you earn your PhD. Visit cbdl.ben.edu slash doctorate for more information or Google PhD Values Leadership. That's Ph.D. Values Leadership. And now, back to the podcast. Um, you, I think you have a story about how one of the mentors involved in your program clarified his purpose. Mm. Talk about that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really inspiring story. So um, Dan Heiritz is uh, also a serial entrepreneur, has been a mentor uh, with Junto since our very beginning. And he attended one of our retreats a couple of years ago. And at that point, um, he had adopted his own purpose statement. And it was fairly recent. So uh, Dan's you know, similar age at the time. He may have been about 50 years, years old, give or take a couple of years. And his mission at the time, his purpose, I should say, was do good things with good people, which I always loved. I, I thought it was just such a concise um, uh, purpose statement that spoke volumes. Um, and especially as someone who had gotten to know Dan, um, I could also vouch for the fact that he was living it out. Uh, at the retreat, we had a couple of speakers who were also mentors and alumni in our program um, who gave, who gave uh, discussions, delivered uh, discussions on things that were related to our vision and our purpose, not as uh, leaders and, and business people, but as human beings. And secondly, um, one of the things that we do in Junto is we use a, a, a very common practice of appreciations at the conclusion of all of our sessions. So we bake in appreciations in pretty much everything that we do. Um, and then finally, we have become very comfortable using the word love in our work. And in a way that's much more encompassing than, than the romantic um, interpretation of it. And what happened at that retreat was uh, after one of the sessions, Dan said, he had tears in his eyes when he said it, he said, I'm going to make an addendum to my purpose statement that while I want to do good things with good people, I also um, want people to uh, feed me, appreciate me, and love me. Hmm. And then he qualified each of them with descriptions of what, what they meant. 
um, so people could have a, a deeper understanding of it. And so it became then his way of kind of qualifying or defining good people. So when he recognizes now that someone has the capacity to uh, feed him from a learning and knowledge standpoint, appreciate him um, for who he is and what he does um, and or love him uh, by simply accepting him for who he is, uh, he's able to pursue this idea of doing good things with them. Wow, what a great story. Uh, and I'm sure there's so many stories like that. You know, how does it make you feel when you have seen um, the growth and uh, and the journeys of these people who have uh, been fortunate enough to go through the Junto Institute? I've got to believe just, you know, not only have you had your own self-discovery, but the impact that you've had on some of these people has to be incredibly fulfilling to you. Uh, it is. And, you know, you asked the question, you started that with how does it make you feel? Um, and one of the things that we use in Junto is this tool called the emotion wheel, uh, where we can identify um, kind of how we're feeling through a variety of words. Uh, I've covered pretty much every word. There's dozens of them um, in the categories of joy and love and surprise. Um, that's what I feel on a daily basis. Mm. Um, my, my bucket gets filled constantly. Um, it's overflowing at times. It's remarkable. The stories, as you mentioned, there are so many more stories like that. Um, and it is, it, I've been able to achieve the number of fulfilling moments in the last seven years. Um, that are, it's exponentially more than what I had experienced in the prior 43, 44 years of my life. Yeah, no question. Uh, and it's only, you know, growing day by day. You know, uh, I think there's a lot that we actually have in common in, in my journey. And um, a lot of the, the fulfillment I get is from um, the Small Giants community and, and, and in a similar way, trying to teach entrepreneurs how to lead and grow with purpose. And, uh, uh, and yet, um, it's fair to say that this kind of thinking isn't for everyone, right? And, uh, uh, and as you uh, approach these entrepreneurs, some of whom have been in business for a long time or maybe a little later in life, middle age, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s even, uh, what kind of pushback do you get, if any, uh, to this idea that um, maybe this whole emotional side of uh, business, emotional intelligence and leadership isn't really compatible with growing a great company? Yeah, well, you nailed it on the head. Um, we we love saying that Junto is not for 95% of the companies out there. And uh, so we do get, it, it's less that we get pushback. It, it, the pushback is not very overt, but... Um, I have developed, you know, the, the ability in my work in emotional intelligence, I've developed a, a, a greater capacity to read people and sense and, and see the signals when there is discomfort. Um, I think most of the time it is rooted in uh, people's backgrounds and whether they have been in environments or grew up in environments where talking about um, their feelings, their emotions, was uh, normal or not normal. Um, other times, it is uh, it you know there is a male female dynamic um, that that exists. Mm -hmm. uh, science has shown that women tend to be um, at a higher level of emotional intelligence at similar ages compared to men. Um, 
but what, what science has also shown is that we both have an equal capacity for its growth. Um, so I think there's something also about the male dynamic, especially for those of us who are a little bit older. Um, but today we're seeing, you know, the younger men who are in Junto are just as comfortable with their emotions despite their backgrounds as their um, women and non-binary counterparts. So um, those are a couple of things that we, we see. Yeah. I remember when I um, sold my primary business to a large public company and I went to work for that company as chief culture officer and and I started to try to convince some of these senior leaders that had been longtime corporate executives that success wasn't just based in the numbers uh, that they or the targets that they hit, but the impact they could have on people's lives and that you can do well, you can do good at the same time that that. Uh, uh, but ultimately, what I have found in in um, in my journey is that uh, you you don't have to pick one or the other in terms of how you do business. That leading with purpose, leading with emotion, intelligence isn't just the right thing to do. It's also good for business. So talk a little bit about the ROI, if I could use that term, of the training that that these companies are going through as part of Junto. Yeah, so um, it's it's really hard to put any. It's really hard to attribute uh, a certain amount to the program itself, um, and I say that with some pausing because the burden of responsibility is on the learner. And if you know we can if we can get them to show up every day, we've done our job. But then when they leave, what they do with it is their job. So uh, what we're able to do is point to the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, you know, they're typically coming in at a growth rate of about 30 to 30, 30 35, 40% and leaving with, um, at within two to three years at growing at rates of 60, 70, 90%. Uh, we have had 31 companies uh, graduate from the program. Only one of those companies um, failed and that was a company from our second year when we were still figuring out how to qualify them. Uh, two of them have been acquired. The remaining 28 are still in operation. Hmm. Uh, they're, by and large, fit quite healthy. Um, we're in touch with the vast majority of them. Uh, they're healthy companies. Uh, they are making better decisions with fewer mistakes. Um, and probably most importantly, I think, you know, when it comes to business, to me, this is always the most important um, metric is that they keep coming back to us. Hmm. Um, they keep coming back to give their business. And as a, as a business owner and as a founder, that's what I put a premium on is, are they finding enough value where they want to keep growing or keep extending the opportunities within into their organization? Uh, now, where did the name come from? Uh, I love this, uh, the opportunity to tell this story. So I'm a, a colonial America, colonial American history buff. And years ago, um, I read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography in which he tells the story of bringing together 12 um, enterprising artisans and tradesmen um, in the year 1727, when he was only 21 years old. Those 12 young men would meet every Friday night for two hours in Philadelphia, population 10,000, for the purposes of mutual improvement and philosophical debate. And 
over the course of time, their own dialogues turned into kind of experiential activities. And perhaps the most famous one of those activities was them exchanging books with one another, which then turned into the first public lending library Hmm. in the town of Philadelphia, and we know throughout the whole country and the world. Well, in addition to the library, about eight other American institutions, such as our postal service, our hospital system, our public university system, our volunteer firehouse system, all trace their roots back to these experiential activities that these 12 gentlemen initiated. And Ben Franklin called that group the UNTO, J-U-N-T-O, after the Latin word, which um, from what I understand means group or members. And that story always inspired me deeply. And I kind of committed to myself that if I ever did anything that was around growth development, Um, And this idea of mutual improvement and philosophical debate, I would adopt that work. And so it was a natural when we had kind of formed the purpose of the Hunto Institute. Wow, what a great story. And that takes, uh, that goes way back um, uh, to the wonderful time of Ben Franklin. Now, looking forward, uh, I know you have a long term, you know, what you call a hundred year plan for the Hunto Institute. Uh, Talk about that. Yeah, so I turned 50 years old last year in 2018, and in doing that, uh, like you know, so many people who uh, have milestone birthdays, it was a time of reflection for for myself. Um, and our, our business had undergone a lot of change also in the prior year. Uh, so I uh, made a personal commitment that I would do anything in my power to be able to live to 100. And I have always wanted the Junto Institute to be the only thing that I did for the rest of my life as the years have gone by. And and I still have that conviction um, eight years after I came up with the idea. So as a result, I also recognized that it was something that that I designed to kind of outlive me. And I didn't want it just to have, you know, a 51 or 52-year plan. Mm -hmm. So I ended up... um, committing to a 100-year plan. And it actually um, has some fingerprints of Ben Franklin in there in terms of um, the the differences. I had the the benefit of looking back to what he did and what resulted from it. Um, But suffice it to say that uh, it's a pretty bold plan in terms of impact on not just our communities here in Chicago and and the U.S., but but beyond that, um, around the globe. Uh, with children uh, and bringing this vibrant community that we already have um, to kind of help uh, help make the world a little bit of a better place just by virtue of the types of people that, that, uh, that we are becoming and that we have the capacity to be. Well, I, I don't have any uh, doubt that you have set a great foundation uh, to get there. Uh, how have you expanded? I know the first few years were pretty much focused in the Chicago area. So how are your programs made available to other entrepreneurs, no matter where they are? Yeah, so we just uh, launched our uh, program online uh, where companies can participate through uh, live video, uh, through uh, learning through our programs here in Chicago. So we run our programs here. Uh, All of our mentors are here in Chicago. 
and uh, we have been doing live streaming for a couple of years and are now making the entire program available to companies outside of Chicago. Um, last year, we uh, did have two companies graduate from the Los Angeles area, and uh, we've also expanded the, the availability to uh, solo um, participants because the, the mm. core program is for teams, for leadership teams. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had a number of companies where uh, there were, you know, in fact, only one or two people who wanted to participate. And uh, so now we have the, the operating ability to be able to accommodate. Wonderful. Uh, now, as you just think about your own journey uh, and the impact that you're having on the, the leaders that have gone through your program, uh, what kind of advice would you give to other entrepreneurs who may not be as familiar with this whole idea uh, of emotional intelligence, how they can take on the self-accountability and responsibility for learning it through either Junto or other resources that may be available to them? Yeah, so you know, one thing that I um, didn't refer to earlier, I think is probably the best way to address this, um, and that is that there are many definitions of leadership, but they all kind of contain um, some words or phrases or meaning that are aligned with the following. That leadership um, can be looked at as moving people in the direction that you're going. And the task of moving people, both physically and spiritually, is incredibly hard. And the reason that emotional intelligence spoke to me 10 years ago was because um, there were so many scientific studies that were done by scholars in, ranging from 1995 all the way through 2008 that concluded that emotional intelligence was the single biggest predictor of effective leadership. And so if leadership is moving people in the direction that you're going, and we know based on science that emotional intelligence has been found to be the single biggest predictor of the ability to be effective at doing that. Uh, to me, it's one of those, why not? Mm -hmm. Why not try it? Um, and you know, fortunately, we are now living in an age where there are books on it, there are uh, dozens of blog posts, if not hundreds or thousands being published every day. There are lots of organizations devoted to it um, besides the Hinto Institute. And so I believe that this is, it's, it's not a fad, by the way. Um, we've seen enough data that shows this is a trend. This is a direction we're moving in. And it is simply, you know, the language sometimes turns people off. But once, in our experience, um, once we've seen people get beyond the language um, and the use of that word emotion or emotional, they start to see that there's so much opportunity for them to, to fulfill the growth and the potential that they were destined to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, very powerful. As, as you're talking, I'm, I'm wondering, am I emotionally intelligent? I, I don't know. I don't know how to measure it for myself, I think. is, a, But I, I reflect on so many of the things you said that have, uh, I think, been ingrained in the way I've led my life and I've tried to lead over all of these years. And, um, and yet, I never did that with a design or, or, or you know, a plan or, or any knowledge of the science behind it. And so, what's so fascinating, and I think what will help uh, drive 
this, like you said, why not for people to try it, to realize that there's, that there is science behind it, that this is not a fad. It's a trend that this will lead to a better life and to uh, a better business. And so, uh, just incredible what you, what you have built, uh, which is, I, I believe still in its early stages. Um, so, uh, congratulations, Raman, and what you have done, um, so far. And, uh, I want to end with these kind of five quick hit questions like the association game and just have you answer those for me. Um, can you name uh, a leader that you look up to? Uh, Seth Godin. Ah, he's a great one. Um, how about a great book that influenced your leadership style? Uh, I can't remember the exact title, but um, I'm pretty close to it. It's How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life by Russell Roberts. Oh. Uh, and how about your all-time favorite movie? Uh, the Breakfast Club. <laughs> That's a good one. I haven't had that one mentioned yet. Uh, and do you have a favorite TV series you like to binge watch? I do not. I don't watch much television. All right. And lastly, what's something about you that many people might not know? That I was a Canadian citizen for the majority of my adult life. Hmm. Yeah, that's where you're, uh, you guys first immigrated to, is right? Um, well, great. Uh, what a pleasure talking to you and, and hearing about what, what you've done so far. I want to reflect on some of the things that I learned um, while talking to you, Raman, and just just even from the definition of emotional intelligence, recognizing and regulating your emotions, this idea that it really can't be taught, but it can be learned. I love that. Um, uh, that that uh, the kind of people that are, seem to be attracted to the Junto Institute, at least to date, are these growth stage companies, the founders and executives. But I love how you have kind of morphed from uh, focusing on just teams to really individuals who are interested in learning, learning all this. Um, and, and just your own personal story and how uh, this became important to you. And it, as we all know, everything we do today is driven from our childhood, how we grew up, how we were raised, the influences. And uh, as an immigrant to Canada, then Chicago, moving around a lot, you kind of felt that um, part of the, the areas of greatest need that we're missing is that you really never kept close relationships or close friends because you were moving all the time. But you had this example, particularly of your dad, who was the hardest working person um, that you knew. And uh, I have the same, same experience with my dad. And, um, but you had, and maybe didn't even realize it at the time, that uh, maybe your parents didn't, uh, weren't always the best parents, or they didn't always have the best relationship. And it wasn't until you were married and you saw in your in-laws, oh, wow, there's other types of relationships out there. And uh, as you came out of the industry, we're in the entrepreneurship center, it really it hit you uh, at the tender age of 40 to say, you know what, um, there's more to this than I'm realizing. And uh, the idea that you had the courage to send that email to the leaders at DePaul to say, you know, what, what are we doing for leadership? And they, they couldn't really even answer you. Um, and through your own um, research found that, wow, there's a lot of this uh, uh, emotional intelligence, even whether it was labeled at that point, I don't know, but it's really re rooted in, in science. And then you took it upon yourself as I think is a wonderful thing to say, look, I believe we can build something around this, that, that I can build an organization that would have an impact on other leaders. Um, you know, uh, Jim Leotold, who came to your, to hear you speak, um, and started to talk about the data that was out there, got you excited about, um, building this, 
uh, and and uh, as I have said later in my career, and I'm 61 now, that um, the the biggest stories I have are the the small impacts that I might have had on people's lives, not what our company achieved as a company. And uh, and I think you have so many stories to tell there. And Dan, who you know had this aha moment where he changed his whole kind of life's purpose statement um, going through your program. Uh, and I think what's really important is that people realize that this isn't a class that you go to where you uh, you learn and it's all going to be handed to you. That the responsibility for self growth is with the learner. And uh, we all have to take uh, accountability uh, for that. Um, and I love that you've built a 100-year plan. You've built a 100-year plan for yourself um, and a result have built a 100-year plan for Junto to move well beyond even the companies and the geography that you have now and realize that, uh, uh, that this is what leadership is about. I kind of loved your definition of leadership, that it's moving people in the direction you're going. And uh, when you ask, you know, why should people take time to, uh, to go down this road, your answer is, why not? And I love that. And, and the more that uh, you can get people to understand that, to go through this, the more impact that you're going to have. And I'll say as one that, you know, we'll do anything that we can to support you and finding more people to go through this wonderful program that you've put together. Um, so congratulations, Raman, and, and thank you so much for, for being on the podcast with me today. Thank you, Paul. Um, that means a lot, uh, and you're welcome. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please support the show by subscribing to hear future episodes. Until next time.